Francis A. Johnson was a quiet man who spent his entire life in Meeker County, Minnesota. For reasons that are lost to time, he began rolling a ball of twine in his basement in 1950. Francis Johnson rolled twine four hours a day every single day. He eventually moved the ball onto his front lawn and used railroad jacks to ensure proper wrapping. Johnson cared as much about his ball's roundness as its diameter. And for 29 years, this magnificent sphere evolved at Johnson's farm, and he eventually built a circular open ear shed to protect it from the elements. Johnson didn't stop until 1979. By then, his ball weighed almost nine tons and was 12 feet wide. He died of emphysema, and the town figured that nearly the 30 years of twine dust likely killed him. But the people of that town, small town in Minnesota wanted to honor Johnson, so they somehow rolled this big ball next to the water tower. It's known as the world's largest twine ball rolled by one man. And I ask, what in the world would drive a man or a town to spend all of their spare time accumulating a ball of twine? Well, whatever else might be said about such a pursuit, we have to be impressed by the passion of those who focus their energies on one very precise goal. But is it high enough, a good enough goal? As it's been said, the core problem is not that we are too passionate about bad things, but that we are not passionate enough about good things. The core problem is not that we are too passionate about bad things, but that we are not passionate enough about good things. What are you passionate about? Passion is all about a basic mindset and a heart attitude for embracing life with all that you have. What are you passionate about? What drives you to do what you do? And what are you willing to go through for what you believe? And I think that is what best describes passion. It is to indicate what a person is willing to go through for what he or she believes. Doesn't that describe our Savior, Jesus Christ, who so passionately loved humanity that he was willing to lay down his life for them? What are you passionate about? Well, you will see it by what you are willing to go through for what you believe. We come to a a very intriguing account today tucked away for us in the book of Joshua. Now, I had Jeff only read the first six verses of Joshua chapter 22, but it is what takes place following those verses that will get most of our attention this morning. Have you read Joshua chapter 22 lately? Think about it, have you? Okay, thanks for the honesty. Well, do you remember the incident? Maybe I can help you remind you of it. 
I read it through again this past week and asked, now why is this story recorded for us in the Bible? It's always good to ask that question. Why is this in the Bible? Well, I think it would be as obvious to the nose of my face as to why God gave us Joshua chapter 22. And as I looked for a singular thread that ties this all together for us this morning, I believe it is the word passion. Let me give you the main thought at the outset. Entering God's best for our lives, which is what this series is about as we work our way through the book of Joshua, entering God's best for our lives is driven, is driven by the pervasive passion for purity. It is driven by the pervasive passion for purity. And that's what we see here in Joshua chapter 22. It's evident what they were willing to go through for what they believe. The pervasive passion for purity drives them to do what they do. They are passionate enough about good things. And what are the good passions we see here that ought to be our passion? Well, we see a passion for mission. We see a passion for truth. We see a passion for unity. And that makes up our outline for this morning. So look with me at Joshua chapter 22, because first we see a passion for mission. A passion for a mission. Follow along as I want to read these first four verses again. Joshua 22, follow along. Let me look at these verses here. You need to be looking at the God's word. Chapter 22, verse 1. That Joshua summoned the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh. And he said to them, you have done all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded, and you have obeyed me in everything I commanded. Verse 3. For a long time now to this very day, you have not deserted your brothers, but have carried out the mission the Lord your God gave you. Now that the Lord your God has given your brothers rest as he promised, return to your homes in the land that Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you on the other side of the Jordan. Now bear with me as I give you a bit of history about what happened earlier after the Jews conquered the land on the east side of the Jordan, they are stationed now on the west side of the Jordan. But when they conquered the land on the east side of the Jordan, Moses was going to abandon the land because the promised land was on the west side of the river. But the leaders of Gad and and Reuben and the half-tribe of Manasseh had asked if they could stay in the land on the east side that they had already conquered because it was just what they needed for their flocks. The land was rich and, and fertile, and, and there were fine valleys for grazing large flocks. And in addition, the land had plenty of water, and it, it just seemed perfect. And so Moses agreed that they could have that land on the east side of the Jordan on one condition. That condition was that they had to go across the river to the west side with their fellow Jews and help conquer the land of Canaan. After that task was completed, they would then be allowed to return to their own homes once more. And as we saw last week at the end of chapter 21, verses 43 and 45, it spoke of God's promises being fulfilled and the Lord gave Israel rest on every side. The thought of rest is more than a lack of hostility. It presents a positive vision of a life where human beings live as they were intended to live with each other under God. The people of God have reached this place of rest. 
their shalom, their peace, every good thing that makes for a life, a full life, was now theirs. And that's where we are this morning. And so for what was, was likely a, a seven-year campaign, these soldiers left their families on the other side of the Jordan River in order to conquer land that they would not even possess. Why would any soldier agree to this? Joshua speaks to it at the end of verse 3 when he says, You have not deserted your brothers, but have carried out the mission the Lord God gave you. They were passionate about the mission. What is it that God has called you to do? What is it that God is asking of us as a church? It is when we rally around that mission that unifies our hearts. We need a mission bigger than ourselves or else we expend a lot of energy on the little things, the things that don't really matter, like rolling up a ball of twine. Loved ones, it's the same mission, building up of the church and saving of the souls that we unite around. And the Israelites were of one mind and of one heart because they kept their eyes on the same mission. And the two and a half tribes fought for a seven-year stretch with their brothers because together they knew what it was God had called them to do as a nation, subdue and conquer the lands. That mission had been accomplished, and now Joshua gives them permission to return to their homes and their families. Now, this must have been a very bitter, sweet time for these men. Think about it. On the one hand, the soldiers could hardly, barely wait to get home. Their, their kids probably changed a lot in seven years. And what did they miss in those seven years? And they had many stories to tell of the great things that God had done. They couldn't wait to go home. On the one hand. On the other hand, the people they spent time with in the trenches and, and fought battles with on the front lines, they would be leaving. Consider the emotions of dropping your, your toddler off at, at preschool for the very first time. <laughs> Or when your child got onto the school bus uh, that first day of kindergarten. Or when you left your grown kid at college. Or, or you moved away from your church family and relocated. And think and consider the emotions of that. And you might be able to relate a bit to these soldiers leaving their brothers. And Joshua gives an emotional speech that begins with his appreciation of their commitment to the mission and a job well done. Now let me say this as more, more than just an aside. Appreciate your comrades. This ought to be the place where we are encouraged. Where do we ever get this notion that to praise another individual is unchristian? It's not wrong to speak of a job well done and to affirm others. It's been said this way, God must be chiefly eyed in our praises, yet instruments must not be altogether overlooked. Do you notice the servants who are faithfully doing God's work? And where there's obedience to God's mission, oh, we should be all over that with affirmation. 
When you're on the receiving end of that kind of encouragement and affirmation, doesn't that inspire you to continue on in obedience? Doesn't it? Does me. Joshua models a great approach to us here. He commends them before he commands them. And it isn't this manipulative thing in which we commend someone just to set them up for a zinger. You know what I'm talking about. Oh, I, you know, I really appreciate your teaching, but zinger, right? Oh, thank you so much. I really appreciate what you're doing, but that was just to set you up because I really want to get one I want to say to you, right? That's not what Joshua is doing here. He reminds them to be careful to continue in their love for the Lord in verse 5. He commends them before he commands them. He reminds them to be careful to continue in their love for the Lord, to walk in his ways, verse 5, to obey his commands, to hold fast to him, and to serve him with everything they have. Joshua is fanning the flame of their passion. These are beautiful words from their general. Joshua then blesses them, and he sends them away, and they head back to their homes, it tells us in verse 6. They separate in shalom and peace. Is it going to stay this way? Joshua might have been thinking, will there remain unity in Israel as two and a half tribes separate from nine and a half tribes? And this is where the story gets real interesting. Look down with me at at verses 9 and 10. Verse 9, So the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh left the Israelites at Shiloh and Canaan to return to Gilead, the east side of Jordan. Their own land, which they had quieted in accordance with the command of the Lord through Moses. When they came to Geliloth near the Jordan, the land of Canaan, the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh built an imposing altar there by the Jordan. These two and a half tribes return to the eastern side of the Jordan, and one of the first things they do is build an altar And it is quite an altar. It says here it's an an imposing altar. I mean, this thing was huge. What were they thinking? And verse 11 tells us the nine and a half tribes living in the promised land hear about what these fellow Israelites did. And I stopped there and I thought, isn't it amazing? How good news travels so slowly. But where there's some offense, <laughs> it goes in one ear and out many mouths. If you know what I mean. A race o- horse owner named his horse Bad News because he says bad news travels fast. <laughs> it's true. It's true. Here's a suggestion to you. If someone comes to you and they say, can you keep a secret? You tell them, no, I can't. Don't tell me. It will stop it right there. A wise teacher sent a note home to all parents on the first day of school. It read, if you promise not to believe everything your child says happens at school, I'll promise not to believe everything your child says happens at home. Good deal. And yet all too often, we live by the adage You can't believe everything you hear, but you can repeat it. Do you know the source? Do you know the source? Do you know the source of what is being said? 
Reminds me of a man who went to an estate sale and he noticed that one of the items for sale was a large parrot. He had always wanted a talking bird, so when it comes up for bid, he offers $50. Somewhere else in the room, there's a bid of $100. And the bidding becomes hot and heavy with with someone always bidding $50 more than he until finally the parrot is sold to him for $1,500. When he goes to get the bird, he asks the auctioneer, Can the bird talk? The auctioneer replied, Who do you think was bidding against you? (laughs) If you don't know who's talking, don't listen. And by all means, don't repeat it. Be careful who we are listening to. Get to the source. Don't be content with that notorious group of they. Isn't this exactly what fuels gossip? The nine and a half tribes hear of this, and it says in verse 12, the whole assembly of Israel gathered at Shiloh to gathered at Shiloh to go to war against them. They heard it, now they're going to war against them. Why all this fuss over building an altar? Well, back in Deuteronomy chapter 12, God spoke of the prescribed place where they were to offer sacrifices once they entered into their rest in the promised land. God carefully detailed what it was to look like when they settled in the land. You see, you couldn't just go along and build an altar anywhere you wanted to and and worship there. No. It was to be a place prescribed by God that would stand out from all the other places where the Canaanites conducted their orgies. And the place that God approved of. This was God's way of preserving the purity of worship. One altar One faith, one people. Now get this. Despite the fact that these Israelites have had it in warfare, just completing a seven-year stretch of fighting, they are ready to put on the armor and go back to war. This time, it would be against their former comrades, their fellow Israelites. The question is, were they right or were they wrong to be ready for a fight here. Some commentators have built a whole case on the wrongness of the nine and a half tribes to be ready to go to war, and they use it as a springboard to speak of misunderstandings that occur in the church. Oh, that preaches, but is that the main point? Some use the passage to say the bulk of the Israelites were entirely right in what they were about to do because the two and a half tribes had no business having land on the east side of the Jordan in the first place. And the preachers use this understanding as a springboard to preach on compromising with the worlds. Oh, that really preaches. Is that the main point? See, it's important we mount the right hermeneutical horse. Were the Israelites right in taking this issue on to the point of going to war with their former comrades, or were they wrong? At the risk of being called a coward, my answer is a little of both. (laughs) But if pressed further, I would say they were more right than they were wrong. Back to our main thought, we see here the pervasive passion for purity. And what's the second good passion we see here? We see they had a passion for truth. They had a passion for truth. We can learn from the Israelites' willingness to go to battle over this issue. They felt that the honor of God was going to be tarnished 
So armor on, ready to go. No doubt they were tired of fighting, but when it comes to fidelity to Yahweh God, fight on. We need to fight for truth. Honor of God is worth fighting for. Be passionate for purity. Be passionate for truth. It's been said that one person with passion is better than 40 who are merely interested. We should pause, though, right here and ask ourselves, is this what causes a fight in us? Is it really the honor of God? Is it really the concern for his name? Or is it about lesser matters around inconvenience or personal preferences or misplaced affections? Are we passionate enough about good things? No doubt, after seven years, they are tired of war, ready for peace. So the last thing they would be up for would be another battle of any kind. And yet they are ready to go to war over truth. We dare not surrender truth for the sake of peace. Many sacrifice truth in order to keep peace. As been aptly said, Peace is such a precious jewel that I would give anything for it but truth. It is truth that unifies the people of God. We miss that. We miss the whole point of Joshua chapter 22. Apart from truth, there can be no unity. Never elevate unity over truth. Lasting peace is that which is based on truth. The Israelites were right, and mostly right, in their willingness to fight for truth. They did some other things that are right here that we're going to look at as we close the sermon out in a moment. But what was a slight misstep here, and was not right, were the assumptions made. Their response, their reaction, was on the basis of assumptions. How often, in the absence of information, do we make assumptions? They jump to the worst possible conclusion. Do you know people who do that? (laughs) No elbowing. But be honest. Do you do that? We can be so negative at times. Stories told when Robert Fulton was testing out his steamboat and people lined up along the bank to witness this new discovery When he put his steamboat in the place where he would try it out, all the people lined up on the bank began to chant, it will never start, never start, never start. It started, and it began to move. And the same people all lined up along the bank began to chant, it will never stop, never stop, never stop. Why, loved ones, are we given to this kind of negativism? It won't work. It won't work. It won't work. Why do we see things in the worst light? Why do we believe the worst when we hear some news? Why do we gloat even secretly over someone falling? Oh, we're so suspicious and we call it discernment. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the love chapter as it's commonly known, it says that love believes all things or love always trusts. That's not to say we are to be naive, but believe the best until there's sufficient reason not to. That was their mistake in this incident. But I want to give credit where credit is due. because This is not just some misunderstanding. It's a sign of health for the people of God. 
I don't want to miss the main point and the lessons to be learned from this incident. They were passionate about good things. They were passionate about the mission. They were passionate for truth. And lastly, they were passionate for unity. This account in the Bible is very instructive to us about how peace is preserved. Israel models for us a pattern to follow when it comes to dealing with conflicts. As it's been said, the mark of community, true biblical unity, is not the absence of conflict. It's the presence of a reconciling spirit. Catastrophe was averted because people did things the right way. And we need to applaud Israel and the handling of this matter. And we can learn from their four steps here, I'm going to give them to you quickly, that they took for resolving this conflict that we can practice in our lives and in the church. First of all, they investigated the problem. They investigated the problem. Look at verse 13. So the Israelites sent Phinehas, son of Eleazar, the priest, to the land of Gilead, to Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh. With them they sent ten of the chief men, one for each of the tribes of Israel, each the head of a family division among the Israelite clans. You see, cooler heads prevailed. They heard, but they looked into it. They didn't just react. They, They pursued truth. It wasn't this, don't bother me with the facts because I already know what I believe, attitude. They investigated the problem, step one. There's a problem out there, you get wind of it, you better find the source. Secondly, they go to the offenders. They go to the offenders. Verse 15, when they went to Gilead, to Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, they said to them, they go right to the offenders, Why is it that we can talk to everyone else but the offender? Because we have feathers on us. We're chicken. Let's be honest. Loved ones, if you do not have the moral courage to go to the offender, then how should I say this? Keep your mouth shut. If you do not have the moral courage to go to the offender, then keep your mouth shut. Jesus speaks to this in Matthew 18, 15. If your brother sins or your sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. Oh, how much sorrow and trouble and damage would be stopped if we did this step right here. These words of Jesus as an example of the Israelites are often ignored. They investigate the problem. They go to the offenders and thirdly, they expressed Clearly, their concerns. They clearly express their concerns. Third step, verse 16. It says, Oh, the whole assembly of the Lord says, How could you break faith with the God of Israel like this? How could you turn away from the Lord and build yourselves an altar in rebellion against him now? And they go on to express how what they did might affect them. That They've been around this block before of one person's sin, which had far-reaching consequences. They learned from that. They don't want to invite God's displeasure again right here. And so they go to the offenders. They've already investigated the problem. They clearly express their concerns. But there's a fourth step, and it reveals the passion for unity, yet not at the expense of truth. They offered help. Step four. They offered help. Look at verse 19. The land you possess is defiled. Come over to the Lord's land where the Lord's tabernacle stands and share the land with us. But do not rebel against the Lord or against us by building an altar for yourselves other than the altar of the Lord 
our God. Do you see their heart in this? They're willing to give up even some of their own land if it would keep the two and a half tribes from rebelling. I love that. They didn't come at these offenders like bulls in china closets and say, at least I told you the truth. The desire was to win them over to the side of truth. Referring again to Jesus' words in Matthew 18, the whole point of confrontation is the hope of winning the erring believer over. Matthew 18, these steps here, is never meant to be this checklist we legalistically go through and unlovingly go through just to say we did the steps. Yeah, I did it. Good. The goal of confrontation is always, always, is always to win the brother or sister over. And if our passion's for God's mission, if our passion is for truth, if our passion is for unity, we will do whatever is necessary to avoid Avoid war between the saints. Now, I don't have time to really get into this. I want to just give you a flip side of this conflict to those being confronted. None of us like it, and we're on the receiving end of confrontation. But let me just read these verses, verse 21 through 24, because we see how they respond to this confrontation. Then Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh replied to the heads of the clans of Israel, verse 22, The mighty one, God the Lord. The mighty one, God the Lord. He knows. Let Israel know. If this has been in rebellion or disobedience to the Lord, do not spare us this day. If we have built our own altar to turn away from the Lord and to offer burnt offerings and grain offerings or to sacrifice fellowship offerings on it, may the Lord himself call us to account. No! We did it for fear that someday your descendants might say to ours, what do you have to do with the Lord, the God of Israel? They take the accusation seriously. They agree that this is, if this is the reason they built an altar, it is sin. And they should not be spared. They are in alignment with truth. They didn't get defensive. They didn't respond in pride. They didn't walk off in a huff. Nothing to prove, nothing to lose. They weren't defensive, but they do give an explanation in their defense. Verse 26 That is why we said, let us get ready and build an altar, but not for burnt offerings or sacrifices. On the contrary, it is to be a witness between us and you and the generations that follow that we will worship the Lord at his sanctuary with our burnt offerings, sacrifices, and fellowship offerings. Then the future, your descendants will not be able to say to ours, you have no share in the Lord's. In other words, they're saying to these nine and a half tribes, it's exactly the opposite of what you thought. The bulk of the Israelites looked at the altar, and they thought the worst. But they did not stay there. Their passion for truth, their passion for unity compelled them to be peacemakers. And the result, look how this ends. Look how this ends, verse 33. They were glad to hear the report and praised God, and they talked no more about going to war against them to devastate the country where the Reubenites and the Gadites lived. And the Reubenites and the Gadites gave the altar this name, a witness between us that the Lord is God's. And I got to the end of that, and I asked, how many conflicts in the church end that way? Celebration. It ends with a clear evidence of God's presence, his peace, and truth on display. All because people did the right thing the right way. All because the conflict was handled properly. And so instead of Israel fighting with each other, their shalom, their peace was enhanced. But listen, peace isn't just a truce. General MacArthur said, a truce 
just says you don't shoot for a while. Peace comes when the truth is known, the issue is settled, and the parties embrace each other. And that's what happens here. And Jesus would say, blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed, that means God approved. And our relationships is God approved. And our motives for this community of believers is that God approved. Is the pervasive passion for purity driving you to do what you do? Are you passionate enough about the good things of mission, truth, and unity? Are you a peacemaker or a peace breaker? Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who enter into conflict to bring peace. Blessed are those who do not assume the worst when they hear some news about another. Blessed are those who go directly to the offender. Blessed are those who are up front with their concerns. Blessed are those who are loving in their confrontation and willing to do whatever it takes to help win that person over. Blessed are those who speak to the matter in private. Blessed are those who go a second time to the offender with others who genuinely care. Blessed are the peacemakers. Are you a peacemaker? Am I? Do you care enough about the truth or you settle for assumptions? The days of tough economic times, a small community came together to pool their resources and work together. And one day, as the community was doing that during harvest season, one member of the community looked on the lake, and there was a man on the lake in a boat fishing, angered by this because the community needed every able-bodied man to be involved in gathering the harvest. This member decided to go, and he was going to go and give this man in the boat a piece of his mind. Went to the shore down from the hill. He called the man to shore, and he, he was about to lay into him about indulging in a leisure activity when he should have been busy at work for the good of the community. And just as when he was about to lay into him, he noticed that the man, as he got out of the boat, was old and bent over. He also noticed several fish in the boat. The man then explained that having worked for years gathering in the crops and the fields, he was unable to do so because of his age and the great pains he suffered. Instead, in order to contribute to the life of the community at harvest time, he got up well before dawn every single day, and he spent all day fishing the lake for fish to add to the community resources. Having listened to the man's explanation, this member felt so convicted about the hasty judgment he had made. So much so that, a matter of fact, he named the hill from which he had first seen the man fishing, Rash Judgment Point. <laughs> How easy it is for us to make rash judgments. Or we can jump to conclusions and make assumptions that are costly. How much mess, loved ones, how much mess would be avoided if instead of fueling our assumptions, we go to the person to maybe find out a legitimate explanation. Would you do that? We're coming around the Lord's table this morning. As we come around the Lord's table, we're instructed in 1 Corinthians 11 that we ought to, before we start to take and eat this bread, that we ought to do some examining. It says everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. 
For those who eat and drink without recognizing the body of the Lord, eats and drinks judgment on himself. Do you hear what that's saying? Who is the body of the Lord? Who is the body of the Lord that we are to recognize? It's you. You are the body of the Lord. The church is the body of Christ. So before we share in communion together, we're to do a little soul searching and examining of how we're getting along with each other. Some others may know about, some maybe it's just you and one other person. Is there someone in which you have passed judgment upon their actions without considering that there may be a legitimate explanation? I want you to do soul searching there. I've had to. I can't say this to you if I haven't, and I'm not done with it, but I have had to. So as we prepare for communion this morning, I'm going to ask you to, to bow your heads if that's how you want to pray or keep your eyes open. That's what you're going to pray, however it is, but I want you to spend a few seconds, a minute or so, to examine yourself and ask, am I a peacemaker or a peacebreaker? Is there someone I've broken peace with in this church that I need to make it right with? Examine yourself. Let God examine your heart before we take part in this communion table. I'm going to ask you to do that. Let's pray silently because on the authority of God's word, if there's something in your heart this morning against another brother or sister in this church or in the community of believers, by the authority of God's word, I say to you, deal with it. Deal with it. You should not rush around this table without first doing that.